This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. This week, I sit down with Jordi Kitsky, founder of Flux Robotics. Flux Robotics is building AI-powered robots to help us grow better, healthier, and more environmentally friendly crops. We talk about the unseen complexities of farming and getting food to the table, the history and impacts of pesticide use, life on a farm in rural South Australia, the considerations taken in designing robots with and for farmers, and a dream to put power back into their hands. Please enjoy my discussion with Jordi Kitsky. Today on the show, we welcome Jordi Kitsky, founder of Flux Robotics. Flux is creating an ecosystem of robotic products to reduce pesticide use in our agriculture industry. So, Jordi, how would you best describe yourself and what it is you're trying to do? I understand that you are both a farmer and an engineer, so I'd love to dive into all of that a little bit more. I'm Jordi. I run a company called Flux Robotics. What we're trying to achieve is to build a bunch of robotics tools to enable farmers to manage their crops and their weeds in ways that weren't previously possible. How I would describe myself is yeah, probably somewhere in between those two things, I guess very much uh, jack of some trades and master of absolutely zero. In the world that we work in, we're spread pretty thinly across a lot of different disciplines within engineering and uh, agriculture and business. Excellent. Okay, so... I would imagine that most of our listeners probably don't have a lot of experience with farming or with pesticide use in general. So for yourself, who I guess would be an expert in this area, what are some common misconceptions somebody like myself, who's a city boy, uh, would have about farming? Yeah, I think probably, probably the biggest one I can think of is the understanding of how much work goes into that one piece of food being available when you go into the supermarket. Like when you go in there and there's an onion or a carrot or a steak on the shelf, I think very few people appreciate the amount of work that has gone into that one piece of food being on the shelf. The intricacy and the effort and the energy and the thought and the time and everything that has gone into that being there from the genetics had to be bred for that particular variety of banana and then they were grown and the farmer managed all of the diseases and pests and nutrition and climatic events and the crop almost got taken out from a flood and then, you know, it had to be picked by hand and then it went into a packing facility and they were working enormous long hours in the packing facility and then it goes on a truck and then into a DC, has to pass all these QA checks and then on to a supermarket, um, you know, and I've, I've skimmed over like 99% of what happens, but just the phenomenal amount of effort and work that goes into producing food, I find astonishing. I think probably like most people just haven't had exposure and just wouldn't even think of half of the things that happen along the way. Yeah, totally fair. I think 
for most of my life, it probably wasn't a concern until the last couple of years when we've observed food prices going up and we start to understand shortages a little bit more and, and supply chain constraints a little bit more. Now, you've mentioned a couple of interesting things. There. I'll have a few follow-up questions related to that. But to begin with, just thinking about pesticide, which is the area that you're playing in, that Flux is playing in, if we look at the history of pesticides, they've been around for a really long time. And through the 20th century, we would have used something like DDT, which ended up being tremendously terrible for the environment and for our health. And we've come a long way since then. So why does pesticide use still matter for you? Yeah, well, I guess firstly, pesticide hasn't really been used for a very long time. So prior to, say, 1900, we didn't really have any pesticides there. If you go back like several hundred years, you'll see examples of people using things like copper and sulfur to manage different diseases. But in terms of synthetic pesticide production, it's sort of an interesting backstory. So probably the key thing that triggered the invention and production of pesticides was the World Wars and primarily World War I, which was, I think it was known as like the chemical war or the chemist's war. Pesticides haven't really been around all that long in the scheme of, um, I guess, agriculture. It has been going for about 10,000 years or so, depending who you ask. The interesting thing when you look at um, pesticides like DDT is they came out and everyone assumed that, you know, this is good. You can go on Google Images today and type in DDT advertisement and it'll come up with these adverts encouraging people to use DDT to keep the flies off their babies and stuff. And it wasn't really until probably Rachel Carson's Silent Spring came out in the 60s, which I think it was like a decade later that DDT was actually banned and people realised the flow-on effects that probably weren't as obvious in the early days. So to answer your question why it still matters, the systems we have today definitely have much more rigorous testing and safety standards in terms of the pesticides that are being developed and then once they are released, the monitoring process. But again, to answer your question, I guess like most of the farmers, I'd say majority of the farmers I speak to every week are saying it is a massive priority for them to be minimising the amount of pesticide they're using. And I guess that must be partially from an environmental perspective and partially from a cost perspective as well, right? Yeah, definitely. It's a it's both sides of the street. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so I'm going to circle back to a couple of things that you mentioned in your previous response around the complexities of getting something grown and into the supermarket and onto our plates. You mentioned that there's a huge range of variables. There's inclement weather conditions, like if we just look at what's happened in Australia over the last, say, three or four years, we've had tremendous bush and grass fires, we've had tremendous floods across a lot of our growing regions, there's been rat infestations as well. So this is all based on crops that need to grow outside and deal with the environment. So what are your thoughts on growing food in more controlled environments like we see with uh, hydroponics and aquaponics, for example? Yeah, I would say indoor cropping is not at all my specialty. I grew up on a grain farm and sheep farm, and that's where I've, I've done most of my work. So there'd be people 
much more educated in this area than me. However, I guess from the maths that I've looked at, it's quite a capital intense way to produce food in those environments. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of the vertical farm companies around the world and the various situations they're in at the moment. I do think it seems like there's a there's a place for them, particularly um, in counter-seasonal uh, productions. We're down here in Adelaide. Uh, if we want tropical food, it has to go a couple of thousand clicks on a truck. There's potentially ways that the indoor and controlled environments can help to balance some of that compared to an outdoor production where your temperature is controlled by the environment, your water is controlled by the environment, and you have a substrate which has an amazing ability to grow food, being the the soil, which is really full of nutrients and beneficial microbes. It becomes quite expensive if you have to build all of those systems from man-made materials as in irrigation systems and the soil substrate and the shelter and you're pumping heavy energy into controlling the atmosphere. Right, makes a lot of sense. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more about you, Jordy. Now, you've mentioned that you've grown up on a grain and sheep farm. How did you go from farming outside of Adelaide to engineering and then on to founding Flux? Growing up on the farm is where I developed my passion for farming and agriculture because you're just exposed to it every day and there's a plethora of interesting problems to solve and like you were saying before in regards to how many variables you're working with you're trying to work out like what variables are the dials that we can turn to grow better crops and that sort of just becomes an addictive problem to solve the other side of it is on a farm you're often like at quite a distance from a at least a city and often a town and so you have to find ways of, of solving problems yourself, which pretty much forces farmers to become self-taught engineers because, you know, things break and you're often in situations where an hour of time can be a significant amount of money. And so, yeah, you're forced to learn by jumping in the deep end on different things. And I think that's why you find pretty much all farmers are very practical people who can fix things, as they say, with a bit of bailing twine and a piece of wire. And so that's probably what helped start me down the path of building technology. I guess like prior to Flux, I co-founded a company um, in the photonics industry. So we were building laser systems to measure the quality of meat. And that's probably where I learned more of the skills that you don't necessarily learn on farm around software development, AI, electronics. And then when I started Flux, because it was just me at the start, I guess I had to learn a lot of that stuff into more more detail. And to be honest, I learned most of it from YouTube and then just sitting in a in front of a computer or a bench, beating my head against the wall, trying to make things work. Amazing. Well, you've gotten this far. We'll see how far you can keep going. Starting off with uh, the company that you founded previously, obviously there's definitely a, a pattern of the kinds of companies that you're working in. This sort of all revolving around agriculture to a certain degree so what made you decide that flux would be your life's work what opportunity did you see here prior to starting flux i had a list of different ideas that i was fleshing out and i had a bit of like a matrix against them all trying to work out how many people are working on this seriously around the world what would the impact be if it came to fruition and different things like that and just the the clearest one to me was and I think it's probably come from just growing up on a farm and seeing how challenging it can be 
um, with the circumstances you put in in regards to the weeds that you're you're essentially trying to control to make sure that you've got a crop led me to think well we've gone through these other revolutions in agriculture over time we went from horses to tractors and that enabled this huge productivity boost and then we went from manure to being able to produce fertilizer out of the air and that enabled this another productivity boost and then we invented pesticides and then there was this other productivity boost and I was thinking where's the next one going to come from because we've been reasonably flatlined for a fair while Um, and I just thought if we can grow better crops with far less pesticide I think that is just going to have such a positive impact on farmers and farming and consumers and the environment so might as well give it a crack. Excellent obviously you would have looked at this matrix but on top of that, ultimately, if whatever solution that you create, you're going to have to sell to your customers, who presumably would be farmers. So how did you validate these ideas that you were having with your potential customers? Yeah, so this comes back again to how many different variables there are in agriculture. So when you're trying to build something for agriculture, it's not like you just build it for agriculture. It's, I don't know how many different crops we would grow in Australia, probably at least 100, maybe more than 200. And so I guess I tried to work out, well, can we build something that would lend itself across most of agricultural production, across broadacre farms and orchards and row crops and, and, and whatever? And then I tried to work out, well, how can we triage our product development? So we start with the crops that have the biggest leverage against them. Who are the crops that are being the most affected by not having access to our technology because we're going to be able to start with a lower volume higher value product and then as we build scale we can bring the cost down and then work into products where there's less return per hectare. I pretty much just went and spoke to as many farmers as I could to try and understand their gross margin analyses and you'd work out okay well what happens if you move up and down their input costs in terms of chemical costs, fertilizer costs, irrigation costs, um, and then does it have any effect on the yield? And so when you move those two things around, what impact does that have on their profitability on a per area basis? And that was how we developed the go-to-market strategy. And I assume, obviously, you would have had a pretty good response from the farmers that you spoke to. So let's talk more about the Flux products themselves and, and what it is you're showcasing to farmers and also potentially investors. I would love for you to describe the Flux solution in more detail. How would a farmer make use of a Flux robot on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So I'll describe our technology at a high level and then I'll talk about the specific applications. At a high level, we've built technology that's able to sense certain objects, for instance, a weed within a few millimetres of accuracy and then actuate upon that object within a few millimetres of accuracy. And so obviously there's there's a ton of different applications that you could then do with that on a farm and we're focusing on a couple to start with. The first one is in regards to minimising pesticide use where it's not needed. The first product we built called Onyx goes out into the paddock and it detects where the weed is. And so rather than the farmer just blanket spraying the whole paddock with the same rate of chemical, it detects where the weed is and then just sprays the weed. So you're minimising any pesticide that might hit the crop or the soil where it's adding no value. So that's the product that we have been demonstrating for the last 12-ish months and just starting manufacturing now for, for at least this season. And then we have another product in development at the moment 
which uses mechanical removal of the weed. So we're using the same principles of detecting where the weed is and then removing it. It's just rather than turning on a solenoid, we are manipulating a robotic arm to, to rip the weed out of the soil. There's a bunch of different reasons why there's a lot of upside to doing it that way. When you're spraying, you're often limited to lots of environmental constraints. It has to be a certain amount of wind, can't be too little, can't be too much. It has to be a certain dew point, has to be a certain temperature. And there's all these different constraints that you can get rid of once you don't have to be spraying anymore. And so that's sort of what's, what's leading us down that path. Plus, if you look at resistance over time, plants evolve resistance to the chemicals we use because you select out, you pretty much kill all the ones that are susceptible and then that 0.1% that survives becomes 100% of the population the next year. If you look at the graph over time of the number of resistant weed species, it's just a direct up and to the right. They, uh, they only get more resistant. We're trying to look at some non-chemical ways so farmers have got a bit more optionality of what they can do to manage their weeds. Excellent. And is this an autonomous vehicle that goes up and down the field or uh, what's the farmer's involvement with it? The first product still goes behind a tractor, like a traditional implement, and that's been part of the strategy as well. Is we want to make our first product as lower friction as possible so we can just get it in their hands and get it out in the paddock, have data come in so we can continually improve our models. The second product I mentioned, I believe, has to be autonomous. We, we have had people ask us to build a tractor-mounted version, we'll see, but yeah, removing the labour components frees up a lot of possibility with the technology. Okay, great. You've alluded to it with the design of your second product, but I'm curious with your first product, which is pesticide-focused rather than mechanical removal of weed-focused, how do you be precise with what kinds of pesticides you use when there are so many different kinds of pests? Like even comparing not just different types of weeds, but weeds versus insects or mold for example yeah our primary focus is on weeds at the moment weeds are generally it depends what crop you're in but they're generally the most challenging because if you think about it they're the most genetically similar to the crop you're growing so they're the hardest to hardest to manage agriculture is a pretty complex system so there's a whole bunch of feedback loops that happen in regards to how you manage your crops often you'll see insects and disease as a result of another variable in that system and so we think that first things first let's focus on getting the weed management and the stress on the crop as low as possible and then let's see what the pest and disease pressure looks like and then we'll start to think about how we might manage those and that could look entirely different because you know often those things are a function of things like sugar content and nutritional content and plant stress right okay now, you mentioned um, the different kinds of variables associated with when and how you should be spraying pesticides. The, for example, the dew points, the levels of wind speed, etc. Whether or not it's your first product or your second product, how does Flux cater for the different kinds of plants that farmers might be growing and the different growing conditions that are needed for these plants? For example, we might go from... A, grain farm and wheat fields where you would have grown up all the way to fruit trees in northern Australia and the variety in terrain as well. You can have flat ground, sloping ground, hilly ground, rocky ground. Yeah, how does Flux cater for all of this stuff? We've tried to design our technology 
in a way that will lend itself to each of those different production systems. And the way we're doing that is largely through modularity. We're designing different groups of products to suit those production systems. Definitely one of our challenges is how do we make it general enough that it serves a broad um, number of farms without having 10,000 SKUs. So we have like a bok choy robot and a garlic robot and an onion robot and a banana robot because it would just become a nightmare to manage and you wouldn't get a lot of the benefits you get from scaling up the volume of technology. We're more thinking about grouping it into sets of production systems. For instance, we're working on a row crop machine at the moment. We're about to start work on the orchard equivalent, which is essentially the same thing. It's really just the mechanical design of how you mount to the tractor to get it to suit that that production system. And then the same again for Broadacre. All right. So not long after you and I first met, I happened to come across a video which I'll link in the show notes, covering a US-based company called Verdant Robotics. And it was a video about their so-called sniper robot that was able to shoot pesticide at specific weeds. So sounds like a fairly similar solution to what Flux has. So why would somebody choose Flux over this other company that happens to be getting a lot of uh, media coverage? Yeah. Firstly, agriculture is an enormous industry. If you look across all the different continents with all the different commodities that are grown, there there's just a, a massive market that needs to be served. So I think it's good that you can look around the world and you, you can see a bunch of different robotics companies solving different problems. At a high level, the way I look at how Flux is slightly different to lots of the other companies around the world is... Farming is in our DNA. Everything we do is based on the farmers that we're talking to and what they're telling us they want, which is probably a bit of a contrast to you might sit, look around the world and see lots of people with shiny tools that are saying, hey, we've got this awesome technology, it can do anything. It might seem like it's sort of the same thing, but it has a massive implication when we're designing our systems or the parts that we're choosing, the cost versus reliability of those and what we think that will happen to those once they have a thousand hours of use on farm and the way the user interacts with our technology versus if that's a farmer or a farm labourer, all of those things has a massive implication into the actual product design and the price as well. Now, obviously, keeping in mind that we're based in Australia and you are building these robots in Australia for, to begin with, Australian farmers, considering we don't have very much manufacturing capacity and capability in Australia anymore, have you faced any challenges around building these robots here? Probably not, given the scale that we're at at the moment. And as you know, there's, there is a lot of access to a lot of really good technology at the moment, whether that's laser cutting or 3D printing or CNCing. So I would say no, we haven't faced any challenges around manufacturing our units to date. Okay. And if you were to scale beyond Australia and perhaps, for example, brought into the US where that other company is working, would anything need to change in, in Flux's product lineup? It will absolutely evolve as we spend more time in those countries and get to know the nuances of, of their production systems. The principles always remain the same of farming, but it's more of a case of how we can adapt what we've built for Australia to other continents. I guess part of our um, 
strategy of going overseas is to start with the countries that are most similar to Australia, both in terms of production system and farm economics, because that's where our product and our price is going to make the most sense. But then, of course, we're going to continue to expand into places where it's probably more different to what Australian production systems look like. So what are those countries that are most similar? The US, I would say, is the most similar. And then parts of Western Europe, and then increasingly so South America. All right. Now, looking forward to this hypothetical future where you are scaling to all of these different continents. What are Flux's next steps at the moment? Our focus for this year is just getting as many machines out on farm around Australia as we can and servicing those farmers and learning from them and learning from their experience with the product so we can refine it before we properly pour the fuel on the fire. I'd say that's our, uh, our focus for the next few months and for the rest of this year. Excellent. Okay. And bearing in mind that, as you've alluded to already, a lot of your time is spent working with farmers, and I presume the rest of the time is spent on product development. So I'm curious, do you have any dream organizations that you'd like to partner with? Yeah, and sometimes it's at the same time. A significant amount of our software development has happened in a paddock. The dream organizations for us are just really interesting farmers, the ones that are pushing barriers in different ways or have different thought processes around things and trying to have a swing for the fence on things. Working with those guys is always always really fun and, and also really valuable for us and our product development. We're always open to at least having a yarn with farmers who are interested in what we're doing and, and, and having, having a chat from there. Excellent. I don't know if anybody will hear this episode, but hopefully they do and get in touch with you. Okay, finally, you were a solo founder at the start, but you've also picked up a couple of pretty well-accomplished engineers along the way. I'm wondering mm. if there are any additional skills that you think you would need at Flux at the moment. Yeah, we do have a pretty awesome team of random engineers who've built all sorts of crazy things and are now thinking about building things for the farms. I guess as we grow, what we're building is very multidisciplinary. We're working across most engineering disciplines and then also you cross that with things like agronomy and farm business it's like a mix of biology and chemistry and physics there's just a, a whole range of different skill sets that we're going to need as we expand if people have a just a, a thirst for solving really difficult problems and have an urge to try and build products that are going to make it easier for farms to grow better food if that's something that would get them out of bed in the morning then that's probably a better measure of whether they would be a good fit for us versus whether they have a phd in soil physics perfect everybody loves a go-getter all right assuming that you end up solving all of these problems if everything goes right for you looking into the distant future what do you think the world looks like then i guess the dream outcome is that Farmers are in a place where they've got a set of tools in front of them which enables them to manage their farm in exactly the way that they want to. Because at the moment, farmers can find themselves, not always, but often in a scenario where what you're growing and the way you grow is dictated upon by the weeds that you have, the pests that you have. And so to be able to put the power back in their hands by building them tools to help them would be the dream. Excellent. Now... Bearing in mind that you've got the first few lines of products that you have are purely robotics focused, in order to build out a full suite of tools 
for all kinds of farmers the world over sounds like a pretty big ask. So what do you think you personally need to do and commit to to help build that? Yeah, well, the, the flip side of having a suite of tools is how you manage focus, which I think is going to be one of our biggest challenges in how we triage opportunities up and down to work out, okay, is this something that we think we have an outsized opportunity to execute on versus other people around the world or not and how we go through that decision-making process. And outside of that, what we need to do, the team you mentioned before, if Flux were to fail, it would not be from a lack of trying. I think you couldn't find a group of people working uh, working much harder on, on something like this. I think as long as we, we keep up that rigour and keep working closely with farmers and just keep our nose to the grindstone, we should make it happen. Excellent. I couldn't think of a better way to finish the conversation. Jordy, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. That was awesome. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to drop any social media info or contact info in case anybody here would like to reach out to you. Find me on Twitter at Jordy Kitsky, J-O-R-D-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H-K-E. Excellent. Jordy, thank you once again. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.